I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading 1 Corinthians chapters 14 through 16. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Now, before we get into chapter 14, it really goes hand in hand with chapters 12 and 13. So, if you haven't looked at those or haven't listened to them recently, then uh, please go over there and take a listen to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13. Chapter 14 continues with the discussion regarding spiritual gifts. But more specifically, the exercise of these spiritual gifts within the corporate worship of the local assembly. So in chapter 14, beginning with verse 1, we begin reading, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets, that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air." There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret." For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit. I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature." Well, as was pointed out at the beginning of the comments in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, it's important to note that there are no passages in the Scripture promoting speaking in tongues in public church services. If that troubles you, 
then please go back and read or listen to the notes on that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, before we dig into chapter 14 here. Now let's do a little bit of review from chapters 12 and 13 regarding prophecy and tongues. Both were given as gifts of the Spirit for the purpose of partial revelation from God. While prophecy stands on its own, tongues are only useful in corporate worship if someone gives an interpretation of those tongues. Let's begin with an overview of these first 20 verses of chapter 14. We glean from chapter 14 that a lot of tongue speaking was taking place, but without interpretation. Now, without interpretation, it's meaningless jabber to those listening. And for the purposes of clarity, the King James Version added the words unknown when describing the Corinthian practice in verses 2, 4, 13, 14, 19, and 27. In the King James Version, the word is italicized to protect the integrity of the translation. Italics in the King James Version indicate a word that's not translated from the original language text, but added by the editors for clarity. Now, the New King James Version, which is what we're reading here, it doesn't insert the word unknown into the text. It simply calls them tongues. It's important to understand that the tongues used as the model for the modern-day movement are patterned after Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Read that passage, and you'll see what they spoke. They spoke in languages. They hadn't learned those languages, but they were languages recognizable by those who were listening. In other words, they weren't unknown tongues on the day of Pentecost either. They were real languages. In this chapter, we'll see a lot of distinctions made between the benefits of prophecy as opposed to speaking in tongues. We'll distinguish the occasions when one is used over another as we look at verses 21 and 22, which we'll take a look at in a few moments. We do see from the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that these Corinthians were in fact practicing tongues in their church services, which were not recognizable as known languages. It is worth noting that Paul doesn't completely invalidate the use of these unknown tongues just in public church meetings. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 again. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Without endorsing or condemning the unknown tongue practice, he does acknowledge the practice with his term tongues of angels in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1. Let me say again that there's no evidence of tongues used in the book of Acts that were unknown to the listeners. Only here in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 do we have any hint whatsoever of this practice of unknown tongues being spoken. And what does he say about these unknown tongues practiced at the Corinthian church? Well, let me challenge you to read this chapter and you honestly tell me that Paul is endorsing the use of these unknown tongues in the church service. Because he really is not. He is without question telling the Corinthians that they have no place in corporate worship. Now, there is an occasion in the church service when a known tongue is appropriate. We'll see that in verses 21 and 22 in a few moments. The Apostle Paul sums up his thoughts on their practice of imperceptible tongue speaking in verse 19 when he says, Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, let's look at these verses more specifically. Since verse 1 sets the tone here, let's break it down. He tells them in verse 1 that they should pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially, he says, that you may prophesy. 
Then verses 2 through 20 are packed with no-nonsense statements about the shortcomings of speaking in tongues. In verses 2 and 3, he points out that no one understands the one speaking in tongues, but everyone understands the one who prophesies. In verse 4, he says the one speaking in tongues only edifies or builds up himself, unlike the one who prophesies and builds up others in the process. In verse 5, he says, Greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues. In verse 6, he notes that speaking in tongues has no value to the audience, unlike the revelatory gifts. In verses 7 through 11, he says speaking in tongues is contrasted to musical instruments which have a distinct, meaningful sound. Public speaking tongues is unprofitable, for he says you speak into the air. In verse 11, Paul says tongue speaking is like listening to a foreigner. In verses 12 and 13, he says only with an interpretation is tongue speaking edifying to the church. And then in verses 14 through 20, he says, do your tongue speaking in private unless you can interpret. In other words, tongues plus interpretation equals revelation as in prophecy. So what about praying in tongues? Well, Paul gives some latitude for the practice, and he may be insinuating that he practices it himself. However, he is once again clear when he says in verse 19, Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Notice the operative words there, in the church, as meaning corporate worship. Having read from the beginning of chapter 12 through chapter 14, verse 20, how can it honestly be proposed that Paul is endorsing speaking in tongues in corporate worship? Now keep in mind, these are the only passages we have in all the New Testament epistles dealing with the practice of speaking with tongues. However, Paul then explains an exception in these next two verses, verses 21 and 22. So here is a scriptural occasion for speaking in tongues in public in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 21 and 22, and I read, verse 21, In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now here are two very important verses when it comes to explaining the purpose of speaking in tongues. First of all, note that Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. Here's what he says in verse 21. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that... They will not hear me, says the Lord. Now, based upon that prophecy in Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, that prophecy is to Israel. So to whom is he referring when he says, I will speak to this people? Well, of course, he's speaking to Israel, the Jews. So if this people refers to the Jews, who are the people with the other tongues and other lips who are doing the speaking? Well, that's obvious. In Isaiah 28, they are Gentiles. So here's the point Paul's making. Gentiles speaking in tongues as a sign to Jews is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Then Paul goes on in verse 22 when he says, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. There it is, plainly stated. Tongues are for a sign to the Jews, to unbelieving Jews. 
Now, don't minimize these two verses. They're very important. God always dealt with the Jews by giving them signs. I mean, remember the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, the plagues on Egypt, the battle of Jericho? Well, the list goes on and on. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews were show-me kind of people. They had to have some signs. Paul plainly says here that speaking in tongues is one of those signs to Jewish people. Although this Jew-Gentile operation is clearly stated in Isaiah 28, from which Paul directly quotes, these two verses are often overlooked. These two verses, well, they explain everything. Now let's take a brief detour here to discuss the occurrences in Acts of speaking in tongues. The first was Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But wait, they didn't speak there in unknown tongues. They were recognized as real foreign languages. It says so right there in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Oh, by the way, there was more that happened there than just speaking in known tongues. There was also the divided tongues as of fire that danced around on top of their heads as also the rushing mighty wind which filled the house. Does it seem a little strange to you that today folks talk about Acts 2 as being the modern-day pattern, but then they're completely satisfied to exclude two-thirds of the miracle that took place on that day? They exclude the fire and the wind, and the tongues, the fire, and the wind were all present on the day of Pentecost. So what was the purpose of tongues on that day? Easy question. It was a sign to the Jews. It was a miracle. Such was the case when the Samaritans were evangelized in Acts chapter 8 and the Gentiles, Cornelius and his household, in Acts chapter 10. On each occasion, Peter was there demonstrating to the Jews that these were God-ordained additions to the newly formed church, previously, by the way, a Jewish-only entity, and it was done with miracles. These two verses in 1 Corinthians 14 verses 21 and 22 validate that exact usage of tongues. As 1 Corinthians is written after the occasion of Acts chapter 2, 8, and 10, why integrate speaking in tongues into the Corinthian church service at all? Well, that's clear in verses 21 and 22. And here it is. When there are unbelieving Jews present in accordance with the fulfillment of Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12, that's when those tongues are used in public. When there are no unbelieving Jews present, Paul says to prophesy instead, because they don't need the miracle. Then he points out in verses 23 to 25 what visitors are apt to think when they hear public speaking in tongues. Verse 23, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down to his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So what about people who dropped in to visit the Corinthian church? Well, verse 23 answers the question. He says, will they not say that you are out of your mind? That's what Paul says about this practice of rampant tongue-speaking going on in Corinth. He tells them that people can be edified with the giving of God's revelation, which is prophecy instead. And then in verses 26 through 40, 
he establishes some order in the church of Corinth there. Verse 26, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged." And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Paul then gives some very specific instructions about how the manifestation of the spiritual gifts are to be controlled in the church service. Let's go ahead and stipulate some important points that we saw earlier. What is prophesying compared to speaking in tongues? Now remember our discussion from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 8 through 13. The early church had no Bibles like we do. We carry a Bible to church. Now, let me ask you, do you contain in your hands the completed revelation from God being your Bible, or don't you? Well, they had no such Bible. Paul describes prophesying in tongues, with interpretation, of course, as the giving of partial revelation to the church. He said this would have to be sufficient until that which is perfect or complete has come. Is your Bible God's completed revelation to the church? Well, now, the Mormons don't think so, but do you? It's interesting to me that nobody seems to be writing down the tongues with the interpretation or prophecies that they hear in their church services on Sunday. Now, really, if they really, really believe that God is giving fresh revelation, isn't that important enough to record and publish for everybody to read? The Mormons published the prophecies of Joseph Smith, and they studied them alongside the Bible. I'm afraid the reality in churches that practice tongues and prophecy in their church services is more, well, more because it's fun, and I've been there and it is fun, and it's exciting, but not particularly useful or edifying. Verse 26 seems to drive that point home as being the case in the church of Corinth when he says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? Let all things be done for edification. So Paul gives some rather structured guidelines about the exercising of tongues and prophecy in the church services. Now, here they are, beginning with verse 27. Here's what he says. First of all, no more than one at a time speaking in tongues. That is in verse 27. And again in verse 27, after no more than three have spoken in tongues sequentially, let someone interpret those tongues. 
And then in verse 28, he says, If there's no one to interpret, let those intending to speak in tongues remain silent. In verse 29, he says, Let two or three prophets speak with one prophet, judging the validity of their prophecies. In verses 30 through 33, he says, Let the prophets exercise self-control and wait for another to finish. No interruptions of one another. God does not work in an environment of confusion. Then he says in verses 34 and 35 that the women, they aren't permitted to speak in tongues. It's a shame for them to do so, speaking in tongues. Paul is very clear about that here. And then in verse 40, he says, let it all be done according to this order. In verses 36 through 39, Paul seems to be tackling a feeling of superiority that he perceived the Corinthians were feeling over Christians in other churches because of their active exercising of spiritual gifts within their worship services. Paul says, in essence, if you're really as spiritually advanced as you project yourselves to be, then you should acknowledge the scriptural validity of that which I have just set before you. However, in verse 38, he seems to be saying, if you don't acknowledge what I have just taught on this issue, then your ignorance remains. To conclude this topic, let me share an observation from personal experience. These seven guidelines of verses 27 through 40 are largely dismissed, well, literally ignored by most churches where tongues are permitted in the course of their corporate worship. Why? Well, in my opinion, these guidelines of restraint, well, they just suck the fun right out of the practice. In the church at Corinth, it appears to have been carnal people. Now, we glean that from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, where Paul calls them carnal. Just carnal people having some fun in their services. Paul issues this stern correction to them. There is no mention in Scripture of tongues in regular corporate worship, except as practiced at Corinth and corrected in these three chapters of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And it was practiced, by the way, by the most carnal church found in the New Testament. If only churches today would heed the simple, easy-to-understand instructions of the Apostle Paul in these three chapters. There'd be no scriptural dispute on the practice of tongues in corporate worship. However, many won't. Why? Well, it's because the uninhibited, emotionally charged, frenzied atmosphere of a Corinthian-style worship service, well, it's just too much fun to leave behind for those folks who care more about having their emotions tickled than mastering the power of the Word of God. Well, excuse me, was I a bit too candid there, do you suppose? As we move to chapter 15, we're going to talk about the gospel. New topic, new chapter, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. In the first four verses of this chapter, we have a formal definition of the gospel. Paul defines the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To summarize, that is precisely the aspect of Jesus' incarnation that makes our salvation possible. It's the combination of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes Christianity unique among all world religions. Since these four verses constitute the very essence of what we preach about God's salvation through Christ, 
Let's spend some time, a little more time, analyzing them. The conjunction, moreover, that we find at the beginning of verse 1 is translated from the simple Greek conjunction de, and it's used to tie this presentation of the gospel message to the thoughts at the end of chapter 14. There the subject was the heavy emphasis that had been placed on the manifestation of spiritual gifts there at the Corinthian church. Notice again that Paul refers to these letter recipients as brethren despite the rowdy environment in the church there. Paul reflects on the fact that he was the one who had personally preached the gospel message to them. It was on Paul's second missionary journey when he first arrived to minister at Corinth in Acts chapter 18. According to Acts 18.11, he spent 18 months there. Now, notice in our text here, verse 1, that Paul says he preached the gospel to them which also you received and in which you stand. So while the gospel itself is going to be defined as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in verses 3 and 4, there's a necessary reception of the message on which these Corinthians subsequently stood. For more details on this, let's look back at Acts chapter 18, verse 8, which says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now let's look at what we have so far with regard to action items associated with the gospel. They received the gospel message, which is expanded in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, as having believed on the Lord. That's the necessary component leading to salvation. The Greek word for believe is pistuo, and is the very same root as the noun for faith, which is pistis. Hence, to believe in Jesus Christ means to exercise faith in Jesus Christ. The Luanida Greek Dictionary defines the verb pistuo this way, to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. So salvation, well, it's a faith thing. When you understand that faith in Jesus Christ for salvation is comprised of believing the efficacy of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and determining to receive it as your only means for getting to heaven, that's what salvation is. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4, through 4, combined with Acts chapter 18, verse 8. That's what the Corinthians did. Now notice verse 2. It says, By which also you are saved. Now here's the deal. you got to be saved. And when you believe and receive the gospel message, you are saved. The remainder of verse 2 might throw you a little bit when taken out of context. Actually, a clear understanding of the context develops fully several verses down in chapter 15. It centers around the resurrection both of Jesus himself and believers afterward. It seems that there were several in the church of Corinth who had been taught that the resurrection, well, wasn't important. So with that in mind, understand that unless you believed in vain, that phrase directly applies to those who discount the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, if you don't believe that Jesus has the power over death, then your faith in Jesus, well, it is vain, isn't it? In that scenario, Jesus would not be able to save anyone. In verses 3 and 4, Paul gives the formal definition of the gospel. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion, which means good news. The first is the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. The second is the burial of Jesus. And the third is the resurrection of Jesus. While there seems to be no dispute among the Corinthians with regard to the death and burial of Jesus, we see in the balance of this chapter 
that his resurrection was a hot topic there. And that's why Paul is careful with this formal definition of the gospel to list the resurrection as an absolutely necessary component in the gospel message. And again, without the resurrection of Jesus, one's faith in Jesus for salvation, well, it's in vain. Then he talks about the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus in verses 5 through 11. Verse 5, And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am." And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Then Paul names some of the witnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. Of course, Paul himself saw him too, a fact he points out in verses 8 through 11. Two instances about which he may be speaking come to mind. The first was his miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. The other is the occasion in Acts chapter 14 where Luke reports in verse 19 and says, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. This is perhaps the instance he mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1-10, through 10, when he says that he visited the third heaven. That'd be a reference to God's abode. After all, they did leave him for dead after a stoning. Anyway, he says he saw the resurrected Christ also. In verse 9, Paul claims his apostleship, and he defends it a bit. The more complete discussion of Paul's apostleship He'd already discussed that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. These comments serve as an addendum to that discussion. In verses 12 through 28, let's see just how mixed up these Corinthians really were. Verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming." Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, 
it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now here's something that's just got to be said. I'm still amazed today at how so many mature Bible teachers seem to make no attempt to reconcile their doctrine so that all of their positions on Scripture are consistent. Now listen, the Bible is what it is, and it isn't contradictory. As Bible students, we need to see it all fit together. We see in verses 12 through 19 that the Corinthians had a problem with this as well. There were people in the church at Corinth who did not believe in a bodily resurrection. Paul immediately points out the inconsistency of that position since, after all, we know that Christ did resurrect from the dead. His argument goes on. If there is no bodily resurrection of believers, then Christ didn't resurrect either, which means our faith and preaching are in vain. There is no forgiveness of sins, and those having been among us who have passed away have perished. He concludes ridiculing that inconsistent view in verse 19 when he says this, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men the most pitiable. You see, Christ's death and resurrection is the cornerstone of our salvation, a point which Paul reiterates in verse 20 when he says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. In verse 21, Paul then pursues a line of doctrine that he more fully develops in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And that's the spiritual death sentence brought upon mankind because of Adam's transgression. Verse 22 says that Adam brought death, but Christ brings life. Verse 23 says that Christ is the first fruit of those to be resurrected, a reference to believers. We find a little bit of prophecy in verses 24 through 28 where we see a mention of the reign of Christ during the millennium and the subsequent events immediately following that 1,000-year period. That's the occasion when Satan is loosed from the bottomless pit and finally destroyed in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. In that same chapter, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. Then all enemies of God will have been destroyed once and for all, including death. That event in Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, that marks the end of specified events in Scripture and the fulfillment of all prophecy. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. So to put it simply, Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, marks the end to which Paul refers in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. That's the new, struggle-free, adversarial-free beginning start in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. This picture of Christ putting all enemies under his feet has its foundation in Psalm 110.1. That verse says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter embraces this prophetic psalm when he declares on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36, and says the following, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Greek word for Christ is Christos, which literally means Messiah. 
In verses 29 to 32 of chapter 15, we see another wacky Corinthian idea. Verse 29, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If, in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 29 indicates that they were a little mixed up about another issue. Apparently, they practiced some sort of ritual of baptizing for the dead, perhaps a practice carried over from their pagan background. Paul points out how inconsistent it is to be baptized for the dead when you don't even believe the dead are to be resurrected. I mean, what would be the point? By the way, the Mormons take this verse 29 and they run with it. They've developed a formal procedure for new converts to be baptized for all their dead relatives so they too can have eternal life. That's the point of their intense interest in genealogy. You join, you look up your ancestors, and you get baptized for your ancestors. There's absolutely, by the way, no mention of such a practice anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul only mentions their wacky practice of baptizing for the dead to show this, to show their gross inconsistency in their denial of the resurrection. He's not endorsing the practice. Paul immediately integrates this pagan practice into his discussion to demonstrate how inconsistent their doctrine is as he once again runs with the futility of the no-resurrection scenario in verses 30 through 32. In 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34, Paul encourages them to stay away from bad company. Verse 33, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. These verses deal with testimony. Verse 33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. In other words, you become who you hang with. When you hang with godless people, your morals will become loose and your doctrine disjointed. The implications are that these Corinthians had become doctrinally confused because of their attempt to integrate their life in Christ with their life in the world. And by the way, that just never mixes. Then we find in verses 35 through 50, everything you need to know about your heavenly body. Verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. 
the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Well, since we're talking about the resurrection here, inquiring minds want to know, what's my glorified body going to look like? Well, first of all, there are a lot of different kinds of bodies under God's creation. We see that in verses 37 to 41. The term celestial there is derived from the Greek word eperonius, which is a compound word combining the preposition epi, which means upon, with uranos, which is the word for heaven or sky. On the other hand, the term terrestrial comes from another compound word coming from the same preposition epi, which means upon, with the word for earth, which is ge. Thus, the Greek word epigios refers to our upon-earth body. Paul compares the resurrection of our bodies to planting a tree. The seed planted looks nothing like the plant that shoots forth from the ground, a point he further makes in verses 42 through 44. Therefore, our glorified or celestial bodies may bear no similarity whatsoever to these earthly or terrestrial bodies, like the seed planted, the bodies that we have now. Our current bodies have limitations and flaws. Our glorified bodies, they won't have those limitations or flaws. Verses 48 and 49 point out that our of-dust body was patterned after that of Adam, but our glorified bodies will be patterned after the glorified body of Jesus Christ, who is referred to here as the last Adam. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Well, that settles it. Our glorified bodies will be like Christ. And by the way, Mary and the disciples recognized Jesus in his glorified body, just in case you were wondering. Verse 50 points out that our current bodies are not fit for heaven. We've got to have a new glorified model. Paul talks about a mystery in verses 51 through 58. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul here gives a brief explanation of the rapture. The Latin word raptus means carrying away. The rapture, by the way, is not the same as the second coming of Jesus Christ. The basic position that I advocate with regard to the timing of the rapture is commonly referred to as pre-tribulation premillennial. In other words, I'm confident that Scripture teaches that the tribulation period of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, 
takes place prior to the 1,000-year rule of Christ. Furthermore, I am most comfortable with the position that the resurrection of believers to heaven takes place at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Incidentally, other good Bible teachers have a variation of positions on the timing of these events. While many people commonly refer to the rapture as the second coming of Christ, technically that's incorrect, and it does promote confusion. Here's why I say that. In this passage, as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13-18, through 18, Paul states that Christ does not actually return to earth at the rapture, but instead believers meet Christ in the clouds. This actual return all the way to the earth does not take place until the end of the subsequent seven-year tribulation. That's when the final battle at Armageddon takes place in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Most prophetic passages refer to the actual second coming of Jesus Christ after the tribulation, also known as the 70th week of Daniel. If you're looking for clearer rapture verses, you have only two, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 58, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Now, the two rapture passages, the two that I just mentioned, give us the following details, and here they are. Jesus descends from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. The dead in Christ rise first, verse 16 as well. Living believers rise next, verse 17. Not everyone will die, but all believers will receive a glorified body, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. This process is instantaneous, according to verse 52. From that time forward, believers will never again be separated from Jesus Christ, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Now, I've provided a prophecy timeline and you can look at it, and you can read Matthew chapter 24 if prophecy really interests you and you want more perspective on that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 and 55, Paul loosely quotes from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, and also Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, about the completeness of the deliverance that takes place. In verse 56, he shows that sin brought death, and sin is exposed by the words of the law of Moses a thought that he develops more fully in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. Finally, verses 57 and 58 give us a word about the victory that is ours in Christ as believers, and then a challenge. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, we have victory. Let's just make sure we live like it. In chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, Paul talks about collecting the offering. Verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so must you do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So Paul gives some instructions regarding giving in this passage. His remarks are not intended to give a comprehensive overview on Christian giving, but his remarks do provide information on a couple of its aspects. He specifically makes mention of laying aside offerings for the saints in Jerusalem on each Sunday. Some have disputed that verse 2 as an indication that we are to bring this offering to the church gathering place on Sunday. They think that it teaches to simply separate it from spendable income. However, verse 2 seems to indicate that Paul is encouraging them to have it already collected so that it will not have to be gathered after he arrives. 
The lesson we may derive from these verses is that Paul is teaching the practice of going to church on Sunday, first day of the week, and while you're going, take your offering with you when you go. Oh, one more point may be gleaned from verse 2, proportional giving, giving according to income. He says in verse 2, as he may prosper. You'll also notice that these particular funds were being collected for the church in Jerusalem. Incidentally, Paul follows up on this call for help to the saints in Jerusalem in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. As a matter of fact, he goes into more detail regarding the spirit and intent of giving, especially in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. And then we have some final instructions to the church at Corinth there, and some salutes. Verse 5, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren. But he was quite unwilling to come at this time, However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus. Fortunatus and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit with yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss, the salutation with mine own hand, Paul's. Paul outlined his intended route here on his way to Jerusalem a route, by the way, that matches the account of Acts chapters 19 and 20. Verse 9, well, that verse is easy to overlook, but it's really important. Paul says, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul's planning his trip to culminate in Jerusalem, where he will find opportunity and adversity. Now, understand this. Just because there's resistance from adversaries, that doesn't mean it's not God's will to pursue it. The reference to Timothy's appearance in Corinth in verses 10 and 11 is to be connected with Acts chapter 19, verse 22. There we see that Paul had sent Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia. Therefore, at the time Paul wrote this, Timothy was traveling, and he was expected to arrive in Corinth. You notice Paul's words of solidarity with Apollos in verse 12, since he had dealt with the fragmented groups at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. It apparently was important for him to show the Corinthians that he and Apollos were unified. In the course of speaking specifically regarding some of the folks there in the church at Corinth, Paul gives a challenge to them in verse 13 when he says this, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. That phrase, be brave, comes from a single compound Greek word and literally means act like a man. 
These are strong verses encouraging a steadfast Christian testimony for all believers. Then Paul issues a reminder of the necessity of demonstrating love. That's the Greek word agape, and that means sacrificial love, and demonstrating that love to one another, a theme he emphasized extensively in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Finally, in his closing remarks, he mentions the household of Stephanus. Stephanus was a member of the church at Corinth whose family, they were among those that Paul had baptized in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. Many think that Stephanus was the Corinthian jailer of Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 40. We don't have any additional information regarding the identity of Fortunatus. Paul first met Aquila and Priscilla in verse 19 in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. According to Charles Ryrie's reference Bible, the holy kiss was an expression of Christian love and was apparently restricted to one's own sex. Verse 21 indicates that Paul had dictated his letter for another to write, but he wrote verse 21 all by himself. Then we have a rather blunt ending in verses 22 through 24. He says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, for those who think that the church needs to be a safe haven for diversity in thought, including even those who have no regard for trusting Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, well, here's the verse that should put that unscriptural notion into perspective. Verse 22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The Greek word for accursed there is used a total of six times in the New Testament. In every place, it's translated accursed, four times as accursed or curse one time. I'm not sure why the King James Version translators chose to transliterate exactly from the Greek the word anathema, maranatha, rather than to translate it. The word maranatha transliterates through two languages, Aramaic to Greek to English in the King James Version, it very well may have been a common greeting among the early Christians, and it literally means, O Lord, come. Actually, the Greek sentence in this verse ends after the word anathema. At that point, the curse has been pronounced. Then a complete sentence in Greek is formed by the single word maranatha, translated from two words, maron and atha, in Aramaic and Greek, thus signaling how much he was looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ to receive believers. However, for those who were not looking forward to the return, nor did they love Jesus, Paul issues a curse upon them. It's just this clear. The local church is to be comprised of people who have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior and people who demonstrate a desire for service. Paul has spent the whole book of 1 Corinthians taking to task those in the church at Corinth who were contrary to that notion. This verse with a curse, <laughs> that kind of has a ring to it, doesn't it? This verse with a curse is designed to say, in essence, if you're hanging in the church for some other reason than for the purpose of developing a personal love relationship with Jesus Christ, then you should leave. Read verse 22 again and you may think that even I have understated the strength of this verse just a little bit. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. 
The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.